Hey listeners, we are Frontline Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. You are about to listen to a sermon from a Sunday gathering at our downtown OKC location. We pray that it moves you towards the power and presence of Christ and calls you to love God, love people, and push back darkness. Please visit FrontlineChurch.com for more information. Good morning. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis 1, 1 through 4. The word of God speaks to us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. This is the word of God to us. Well, good morning, family. Doing okay? All right, three of you doing good. Love it. Hey, I'm really glad to be with you guys today. My name is Chad Kinster. I serve as one of our pastors, teaching pastor here downtown. And I'm excited to open the book of Genesis with you. We uh, kicked off this series last week with Pastor Kevin. If you were here, if, if you weren't, that's what we did. And today we actually get to dive into the text and, and go for it. So this is going to be our study for the next, uh, through this semester, we're going to take Genesis 1 to 11 uh, up into Advent season, up and before Christmas. And so if you're looking for something to read in scripture, I'd encourage you to join us in the book of Genesis, join us in your community groups. We'll be, we'll be picking this up. Part. So we're excited to jump in. If you've got a Bible, open up to that passage today. It's where we're going to be, uh, the passage that was just read. Our whole text this morning is 1 1 through 2 3, uh, which is uh, a lot to cover. I've got 30 minutes to do it. So um, if you're a guest with us, as Corey said a moment ago, I'm really glad that you're here. If you're here today and you're not a Christian or you're someone who's exploring the faith and not quite sure what you believe, I just want you to know from me, it's a privilege to open God's word with you. I, I consider it a real honor that you would just take a part of your Sunday just to be with us. And so I hope what we do in the next little bit is meaningful to you, and we're really glad that you're here. So if you would pray for me, I'll pray for you, and we'll see how God would shape us. Sound good? We want to pray like our Lord Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God, I pray that your name today and these next 30 minutes would be hallowed here. I pray that your name would be made heavy on us. That your name, everything about who you are would come to bear on every bit of our own life. That you would come to bear on us in places of anxiety. Come to bear on us on places of depression or confusion. Come to bear on us in places where we have no faith or a lack of faith or we're angry about faith. Father, thank you that you're big enough to handle all of those places and not one of those things about us makes you anxious. And so would you please have the voice of creation come forward even to us today as we encounter your word that when you speak, things stand firm. And would you cause things even in us that are weak and crumbling to stand firm again? And so we trust you for everything you want to accomplish over the next 30 minutes of our time together. And I ask that you would hold us to attention by the power of your spirit and the goodness of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. And we all said, amen. Bereshit bara Elohim et hashimayim va'et ha'aretz. In the beginning, God created 
the heavens and the earth. Listen, it doesn't matter whether you read the opening line of scripture in Hebrew or in English or any other language under the sun, there's not a more epic start to a story or to a narrative than this. Not a more epic start. The beat drops from the opening line. Only seven words in the original Hebrew, but it's a world of meaning, a world of meaning. The biblical text is prophetic from jump, prophetic from the jump. Everything is summed up in and is at the hand of not many gods, but Elohim. The biblical text is filled with wonder from the beginning. Everything that you've ever experienced, everything that you've ever seen, every sunset, every sunrise, every mountain vista, every, every bit of vastness of seashore and ocean, every glorious Oklahoma 30 degree drop in temperature, all of it, all of it. Who did this? Elohim did this. Well, if he did this, then what must he be like? This beginning is filled with hope. Your origin is not random. Your origin is not an accident. It's not a coincidence. You're not a surprise. This origin is intensely thoughtful, intensely thoughtful. This creator is distinct from his creation, but he's not detached from his creation. He delights in it, and he's involved in it. This beginning is prophetic. This beginning is filled with wonder. It's filled with hope. And so we come to the book of Genesis, especially these early chapters, but maybe even more especially this opening chapter, what we're dealing with is origins. We're dealing with beginnings. And so we're provoked to, uh, to ask and to try to answer some of the most important and fundamental questions that anyone can try to take up. And not just a, a question or to try to answer some of these questions one time, but actually stuff we need to return to over and over again because we're prone to forget. Questions like, who am I? Why am I here? And listen, who am I? Why am I here? And who determines that? Who determines that? These are critical questions. And so for our text today, I've got 30 minutes to unpack a masterpiece. A masterpiece is what lays in front of us. I'm not gonna be able to get to all of it. We're not gonna walk through this line by line. We'll walk through it instead theme by theme. And we're gonna work around it in three turns. God and the beginning, the heavens and the earth, and then finally, goodness, blessing, and rest. God in the beginning, the heavens and the earth, goodness, blessing, and rest. I want you to notice again the first four words that really serve to drive everything else in this passage. In the beginning, God. Stop there. In the beginning, God. It's no accident that God is the subject of the opening line of the sentence of the Bible. In case there was any speculation on who the main player in this story is, with this one line, all bets are off. We know who it is. The entire chapter is dominated by Elohim. Dominated. God is mentioned by name 35 times throughout this chapter. Just even a sheer glance at Genesis 1-1 in your Genesis chapter 1 in your Bible, his name catches your eye all across the page. One scholar put it this way. The passage, indeed the book, is about him first of all. To read it with any other primary interest is to misread it. And so Pastor Kevin said something really important last week for how we understand the book of Genesis or any other book of the Bible. 
We've got to remember that it was written for us. That's true. The book of Genesis was written for us, for our edification, for our upbuilding, but it was not originally written to us. We've got to remember the original audience of the book of Genesis is post-Exodus Israel. Israel had just been set free from slavery to Egypt. They escaped them by that great event of the Red Sea where God swallowed their enemies in the rushing waters. And now Israel is in the wilderness, and it's at this time period when Moses pins the book of Genesis and they receive it, wandering there in the wilderness. They're wondering where they're going. In many ways, they're wondering how they got there, where they came from, and how now to build a life as a freed people. And so what Moses was trying to do for them, what he's trying to do for us is connect the dots that the God who had just delivered you from slavery... The God who has met us here at Mount Sinai is also the same God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the stories you've been passing along through the generations. And the God of your fathers is also the God of creation. He's helping them trace their story to help them understand that Elohim has been at the center of this all along, even from the very beginning. And at this time, Moses and the Israelites, they would have been full aware Having been in Egypt and all of their gods and their polytheism, they had been fully aware now in the wilderness of the popular creation stories of the Babylonians and the Mesopotamians. The Epic of Atrahasis and Enuma Elish and the Epic of Gilgamesh and others. And not only did they have their own creation stories, these other narratives would have had their own flood stories. And so what's happening here in Genesis 1, Moses is writing with the knowledge of those stories. The nation of Israel is listening with the knowledge of those stories, yet he's writing in prophetic defiance of those stories. Those stories tell of many gods, yet Genesis proclaims Elohim alone. They tell stories of divine spirits and creational matter existing always side by side, but Genesis rejects that kind of pantheism and proclaims God as distinct from his creation, and yet creation dependent upon him. In those ancient mythologies, they would have understood the sun and the moon and the stars and sea creatures to be themselves gods, to be worshiped. But Genesis says, those things are just merely creatures. Several scholars point out that Moses even avoids the the, the words for sun and moon so that his readers wouldn't have mistaken them to be gods. In verse 16, he just calls them the greater and the lesser light to further highlight the majesty of Elohim. And this means, guys, from the beginning, Elohim stands alone as supreme. He stands alone as sovereign. He stands alone as true. Listen, he's always been. He has no beginning. And yet creation has a beginning, and it's at the hands of his handiwork, at the hand of his masterpiece. And so he stands as supreme and true today. You've got to hear this. He's as supreme and he's true today as he was in the beginning. This means that you don't escape him. You can't escape him. You're living in his world You're living in his world. Listen, the breath you're breathing right now, the sound of my voice that you can pick up with your ears is something that has been offered to you and sustained by him. This line keeps moving. In the beginning, God, he created the heavens and the earth. This is our second turn. 
The scope of God's creative work touches everything. It touches everything. The heavens and the earth is this Hebrew phrase that speaks to totality. So think of it. Every speck of dust in the millions of galaxies of the universe. Every one of them. Charles Spurgeon once said, there's not a single molecule bouncing in the cosmos apart from the command of our God. And so we're told two things about the creative power of God here in Genesis 1. Number one, it's unrivaled. His creative power is unrivaled. The verb create in verse one is an interesting word in Hebrew. It's the word bara. And throughout the Old Testament, it's only used in reference to God. And it's used six times here in this creation account. The idea is only God can truly create. Only God can do this. God takes the formless void and the darkness of the deep in verse two, and he brings order from the chaos. Scholar David Atkinson says it this way. It is God's transcendent freedom to bring into being what he wills, to bring form out of what was formless, to give order where there is disorder, shape and pattern and beauty to what is as yet waste. And we need to take in that this is what creation means, he says. It is God's work to make things ordered and beautiful. This is the way that God is. God brings into being things that are not. God brings to life where there is no life. God is not simply nature. God is the one who brings nature into being and constantly renews it. His creative power is unrivaled. And the second thing to see, his creative power, it comes by his word. It comes by his word. This is fascinating. Ten times in this chapter, we get the phrase, and God said, Eight times we get the command, let there be, and we hear this resolve each time, and it was so. And it was so. The biblical picture of creation is not this struggle between forces, and then something comes out of that. The biblical picture instead is that Elohim speaks, and what he speaks stands firm, unquestioned. It's unrivaled, and it's by his word. And so now we get into the six days of creation. And this is where people get a little chippy. This is where people get a little spicy and they like to debate about some stuff. Are we going to talk about six literal days or are these six metaphorical days or are these six geological ages? How does this happen? If I believe the biblical narrative, does that mean um, evolutionary theories have been upended or can I still believe in science and the Bible? Others are going to say, no, 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 that's not what it's about at all. Notice the, the parallelism. Notice the refrains. It's like poetry. Others are going to say, no, it's not poetry. It should be taken seriously like historical narrative prose. Is it both poetry and prose? People debate all kinds of ways about all of this. Maybe you've been in some of these debates. People can get really hot because they have a whole system of belief that's built on one of these things. And Whichever side of the argument that you're on, you think that you're right, and whatever else someone else says, they're clearly wrong, and they don't take the Bible as seriously as you take the Bible because you're reading it literally or something else. But here's the problem with all of that. Let me just pause to say, no one has ever come to Jesus because you won a creation argument. Let me just pause there for a second. But the problem with all of it even bigger than that is that Moses wasn't writing for science. He wasn't writing for science. It's not to say that he didn't believe in science, that science isn't helpful. That just wasn't his purpose in writing. 
He also wasn't writing to interact with our modern Western philosophies. Remember, he was writing to a post-Exodus Israel to show them and to show us that the God of your salvation is also the God of creation. And so for the original Hebrew readers, they would have been reading this creation account far more interested in the meaning of it all than the method of it. They wanted to know what does it mean, not how did it happen. They would have been asking why questions, not so much how questions like we do. Again, David Atkinson says this, to the Hebrew mind, what mattered about time was not so much the order that things happened in, but the significance that the moment held. It wasn't so much the order or how is it happening, but why is it happening? That's what they were concerned with. And so a great example of this is to see how the six days are structured. Isn't it interesting that in day one, you get the separation of darkness and light. In day one, you get day and night. But we're not even introduced to the sun and the moon until day four. You would think if this is about order, we would get sun and moon because they go with day and night and they go with darkness and light. We get darkness and light and day and night, but not until day four, sun and moon. They were asking questions, not so much how did it all happen, but what does it mean? It's even pictured in the way it's structured. And so what you have in the six days of creation is more about rhythm. It's more about liturgy. It's about God both forming the earth and filling the earth. So I'll say it this way, days one to three, are God doing the work of forming the earth. In days four to six, he does the work of filling the earth. There's this perfect symmetry to the way these days correspond. I think you'll show it on the screen. So day one, God does the work of forming and distinguishing darkness and light. But on day four, he does the filling work of placing the sun and the moon to govern over the day and the night. On day two, he forms by separating sky and sea. On day five, he fills the sky with birds and the sea with fish. On day three, he forms the land and he brings forward plants. On day six, he fills the land with animals and with humanity. And so one of the things you see happening as the days of creation roll forward into day six with the creation of man and woman, is that up to this point, all of creation, plants and animals and fish, they've all been given life, and we get this refrain that shows up. You've read it before, and you've probably stuck in your, in your mind, according to their kind. According to their kind. So pick up in verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit-bearing trees in which, there, in which is their seed. And each of those, according to its kind, and on the earth. And it was so. Verse 21. And God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm. And he did this according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 24. And God said, let earth bring forth, uh, bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And so all of this is happening up until the final act on day six where God creates man and woman. And he creates man and woman. All of this reading about according to their kinds and according to their kinds of all other creation, now we see man and woman being created after an entirely different kind. After the likeness of God, it says in verse 26, 
And then God said, after all of that, now let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over all these other kinds of the fish of the sea and of the birds of the heavens and of the creeping things all over the earth that creeps on the earth. That's such a crazy phrase to me every time I read it. In 27, and so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And I love this line in verse 28. And he blessed them. He blessed them. And so we'll talk more about what it means to be made in the image of God next week. That's the entire theme next week. But I at least want to say here in regards to creation, every other creation account of those Babylonians and Mesopotamians and all of humanity was created in their reasoning out of this begrudging, bloodthirsty war of the gods. And then humanity came forward. And in their narratives, the whole purpose of humanity was to work for the gods because the gods were tired of providing food for themselves. And so humanity would work for that, bring it into their temples and offer sacrifices so the gods could eat. And yet here in Genesis, in prophetic defiance of that, Elohim doesn't create humanity out of frustration but out of delight. It's not out of frustration, it's out of delight. Man and, man and woman aren't so much working for God because God doesn't need anything from them. Instead, their purposes are to care for creation and reflect what God is like to the rest of creation, and in that purpose, God blesses them. Blesses them. And so listen, guys, not only is the biblical narrative a wildly different story than you'll find anywhere else, it's a wildly better story. It's a better story. And so again, if the early, early Hebrew audience would have been looking for meaning of the heavens and the earth, not so much the how, but the why, here's what they're finding in Genesis 1. That creation comes forward from the overflow of the all-sufficient goodness of God. That's what's happening there's so much goodness pent up in the Godhead of Father, Son, Holy Spirit that from the overflow of this, he starts to create. It's not about angry gods doing something to show off or to have one-upmanship to one another. This is about the supreme and sovereign alone doing something from the overflow of his goodness. What they'll find here is that Elohim is unrivaled. What they'll find here is that we've been created, they've been created with dignity and honor to reflect the beauty of God to the rest of creation. And so this means today that your identity and your purpose, who are you? And why are you here? And who determines that? Your identity and your purpose aren't so much things that you go discover or that you self-create. Instead, they're things that you receive. That's what's happening here. You don't go discover yourself or go self-author a purpose. You receive that under the sovereignty of Elohim. You don't, look, you don't find it by looking inward. You find it by looking outside of yourself. And this gets us to the final turn today. Goodness and blessing and rest. My younger kids are 10 and eight and six, and they're still at the ages where they'll just say your name over and over and over and over and over again to wear you down to finally get your attention. They're at that age, right? And it's an amazing thing. It can be an anthem in our house, you know. And so with four kids around the house, 
getting a word in is like an act of survival at the cancer home, you know? It's like an act of survival. Only the strong survive. And in our house, often the way you get heard is by repetition. You can think, if I just, I just said this 15 times, no, 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 I'll finally hear you if you offer it once more, a 16th, right? Repetition is the way you get heard. And I bring that up to say the same thing is true in any plain reading of this chapter. The repetition of words and phrases serves like breadcrumbs to lead you along. As I mentioned, Elohim is named 35 times. The phrase, and God said, is mentioned 10 times. The refrain, every day of evening and morning. And there's one more that sticks out. It's this phrase, it was good, that closes out each workday. And all of that leads to verse 31. It says, and God saw everything that he made. God saw everything that he made. And behold, it was very good. And then it says there was evening and morning on the sixth day. Hey guys, it's worth noticing in this passage that before anything is said about evil, before anything is said about dysfunction or wreckage or fracture or pain or sin, before anything like that is, the word that is offered by God himself over creation is, it was very good. It was very good. That's, this, here's why I bring that out. Because if there was a tone, like if, if you were to read Genesis 1 out loud with your family and you're wondering what, what's the tone I should read this with, it should be a tone of celebration. It should be a tone of joy. God is busting with delight at this. It was very good. That's the tone of this whole narrative. And yet I point that out to say, as wonderful as that is, that's not even the highlight of this whole thing. That's an amazing thing that God does, but it's not even the highlight. The crescendo of creation isn't man and woman, like we sometimes think it is, made in the image of God. That's an amazing thing. The crescendo of creation isn't even God's good assessment of it. The crescendo of creation, the thing that everything is building toward, is day seven. Everything is building to day seven. Why do you say that? Well, because all the other days have a pair. We just walked through that. All the other days have a match. There's only one day that has no match. There's only one day that God blessed and set apart as special. There's only one day, listen, that has no end. Every other day, you see the refrain, there was evening and there was morning, and you don't get any of that with day seven. There's no close to it. Pick up with me in chapter two, verse one. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. The picture we get here now puts this whole thing into perspective. Lean in because here's the finish. The forming and filling of creation was in effect God building himself a temple in which he intended to dwell, a place where he intended to be worshiped and enjoyed. And so it was common in the ancient mythologies of the day for the seventh day to be a day where the gods would show up to their temple and they would expect from humanity what they demanded from them. And yet here in Genesis, the seventh day, God rests in the temple of Eden, not to get from his people, 
but to simply be with his people and his people with him and to enjoy creation together. There's no ending to the seventh day because God's intention was that this would be the way that every day would be lived. It's meant to be an open-ended invitation to enjoy God's presence and his world forever. And so that's beautiful. The seventh day was how God intended for every day to be. But we know (laughs) that that plan is frustrated two pages over in Scripture. Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man and woman at their rejection of God's word. But not even sin, not even sin will destroy the original intention of the Father to rest with his people and his people with him. And that's what's driving the arrival of Jesus when we see the creation narrative show up again in John's gospel, in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And this word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. And he has come not with judgment or demands, but full of grace and truth. This is, guys, this is the maker on a mission to remake his people after the effects of sin to be with them forever. This is the creator writing himself into the story to recreate fellowship again. And so in the beginning, what went wrong by a tree? By the Father's will, gets set right by a tree. When the Son himself bears our curse being stapled to a cross, Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, anyone who's weary. Come to me, anyone who's burdened. Are you weary and are you tired because of your sin? Are you weary and are you tired because you're trying to patchwork a life together as if to prove yourself to God that you can do it and you can make good on an investment that he gave? Are you tired and weary from having to be on the treadmill of performance? He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Why? Because I'll give you rest. This is the seventh day. Do you see it? This is the seventh day being made open again. And this is where everything is headed for those who would look to him. Revelation 21 and verse 3. And now I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. This is the ark of scripture. We've just gone from Genesis 1 and creation to Revelation 21 and new creation. Elohim is in his renewed garden temple, resting with his people and his people enjoying him forever. You see, listen, guys, where the Bible is going is the way that it was intended to be in the very beginning. Where all of history is bending is the way it was intended to be in the very beginning. The story of creation is not about the literalness of six days. The story of creation is about a literal invitation to surrender to God and live in his presence. That's what this is about. An invitation to surrender to God and live in his presence, in his world, with him, shaped shaped in everything that you do. So here's a question for you today. 
Where are you bucking the presence of God? Where are you bucking against living? Where are you trying to run from his presence? Where are you trying to silence his presence? Where are you trying to handle things on your own and get to God later? Where in your life are you trying to patchwork something together and then deal with God on the other side if you need a favor? Wherever that's happening, would you please stop and hear the invitation of creation? Rest in my presence, with me, in my world, and let's then reassess and do this over. That's what's happening in creation. Guys, this is the first of so many times as we move through our study of Genesis that we're gonna see this happening. When we know where we've come from, we'll know better where we're going. And we'll know better where God's taking us. He's moving us to his presence. And you can't escape him. And you shouldn't want to. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, thank you that you've come to reopen the seventh day to us. Thank you for the, that the way that you always intended things to be is not something that we broke and that you left broken, but it's something that you've come to put back together. And God, I do pray that we would hear today, I pray that I would hear today for all the ways I'm trying to avoid you and get away from you and not just at times not deal with you. God, would you help us to see that from the story of creation, you're not trying to bother us, to oppress us. You're trying to get our attention to set us free. God, would you reframe us by your spirit to see your presence as a gift and not as something we've got to deal with. I wonder where in our lives, God, you'd want to show us where maybe we're just bored with you and we don't really care about your presence. We just settle for believing things. God, would you help us to be drawn again to say, I want to be with my God, my maker. Would you reshape the way we see living in your world? I offer this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.